Well, good morning. If I walked up to you and just asked you what's your favorite part of the Christmas season, we'd all have our different answers. It might be the food, the gift giving, the gift getting, uh, all the different parts of seeing your family and traveling, all those different things that are fun about the Christmas season. Um, our answers might start out kind of shallow, like I love the gifts, uh, I, love, I love traveling, all that fun stuff. But eventually we'd get to the, the different pieces of Christmas that we all kind of feel on different levels. Things like uh, compassion, patience, humility. Uh, as a culture, we love what Christmas stands for. In the popular mind, Christmas is all about hope for the future, that peace is actually possible, and all the wrong things can be forgiven. And not only do we stand for those things, but we tend to villainize the things that go against it. We love what Christmas stands for, hands down. Everyone can rally around the abstract ideas of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love. Anyone can get around those all things. All things we associate with the Christmas season. But what do you do when those abstract ideas suddenly have to be put into practice? What do you do when you go back to work after the new year comes along and you still have to deal with the same people? You have to have compassion on your coworkers. And it's actually just as hard as it was before Christmas. And what do you do when you have to have as much patience with your kids today as you did yesterday? What happened to the Christmas spirit. And we run into this problem head first every year. We have so much fun during Christmas, and we should. And then reality hits us just a few days later. How do we keep the, what Christmas stands for all year long? What does it take from me and you to actually live the change that Christmas brings and promises? Because that's the point, right? We don't want to talk about these things like they're just abstract ideas like compassion, humility, only to ignore them at the very moments we need them the most. The good news is that God has not left us to our own devices once again. We can never stress that enough. For the Christian, the point of the Christmas season is that we reflect on the mystery that God actually became one of us to endure every temptation you and I face to show us most fully and finally what God is actually like, and to one day offer the sacrifice that you and I have tried to offer in our own ways all our lives. Christmas is the turning point where God's plan for saving us takes a whole new radical turn. And the manger eventually always ends up at the cross. Through the cross, we become God's chosen people, which brings us today to Colossians 3. The Apostle Paul tells us that because of that fact, through the cross, God has chosen a people for himself, a family, and it demands that we begin to behave and act and interact with each other in a very different way. In chapter 3 of Colossians, he tells us that we should be putting to death the things that reflect who we were before we were made children of God. We're not surprised to read what he lists here, are we? I mean, he says things that we hate, like anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. No one advocates for more of those things, do we? 
We don't need more anger in Congress. We don't need more fathers taking out their rage on their children. We don't need more slander in the office. We don't need more filthy language on the factory floor. And yet it continues by the same people who say we don't need any more of it. When I say that God has not left us to our own devices, I mean that he knows what the problem is and how to fix it. Because ultimately, the problem is my heart. A stalled car engine can't fix itself. A broken chair can't make some lifestyle changes and make some commitments to making those changes and wake up one day repaired. The same goes for the human heart. We can't fix the problem that's in our own heart. And you and I see the futility of each and every day. People commit to all kinds of things, and a year from now, they will find themselves in the same place, fighting the same struggles, fighting the same addictions, and without a God to give us an entirely different new heart. What hope do we have? What chance have we got to get or build or fix our heart? Paul even says what we know already deep down, that we can't fix ourselves. He says this, He says this about what it means to let God renew your heart. He says this in Colossians 3. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, and here it is, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You have died. Your old self is gone. Your life is now completely and securely with Christ. He has raised you from the dead. You are an entirely new creation. And that means your heart is new. The sin that makes you and me feel so ashamed is done away with. The guilt that we have uh, ascribed to it is gone. You desire new things. So when you do sin, it makes you sick to your stomach. In the very least, you know what you've done breaks the very heart of God. And while that's enough to make you appear holy before a holy God, we still live life here on earth. We still have to go to work tomorrow. We have to have Christmas with the same family next week. We still have a job to do until God calls us home or brings his kingdom finally and fully here. Many of us have tried to lose weight or get fit or breathe easier, and we do those things just quite simply by eating better and exercising, right? But it's the most difficult thing to start, though. It's not easy, no matter how motivated you are by a bad doctor's report or your own desire for better health, to actually get over your anxiety of being seen in a a gym by other people or to start eating differently regularly. To do that, you have to start replacing anxiety with excitement have to replace nervousness with courage until we fully replace the things holding us back from being God's holy people, what we know is best. We will never get started until we replace the things that don't make us holy. We'll never get started. And that's exactly the encouragement that Paul gives us here. Our nature has been more like what he lists in the first part of Colossians 3, impurity, lust, Greed, when we know those things have already killed us spiritually. But if we don't replace those things with the necessary changes, what kind of life can I expect to live? What kind of things that the Holy Spirit promised do I expect to see? Without replacing those things, 
that Paul says have killed me spiritually, what hope do I have? So Paul says to replace this laundry list with the kind of habits that killed us, like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, language, lying, with habits that reflect God's character. When we read the list that he lists as qualities that are evidence of a God-redeemed, Christ-centered, spirit-filled life, we can't help but think of all the things that we associate with Christmas, with all the things that Christmas stands for. Look at what he says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves then with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, we all know from our own experience that if someone tells us to stop thinking impure thoughts, what's your first thought? We all know that if someone says, don't get angry, we're probably already angry, and that just made things worse. The Christian must put on new clothes when taking off the old ones. We must take off the habits that killed us in the first place and put on habits that give life. Paul may have had this image in mind when he wrote this. We all know how just vile and disgusting things like the crucifixion were. Ways that Rome had to punish who they considered to be criminals. And if you study the crucifixion, it was vile and disgusting. Jesus had his flesh torn off, his, his skull broken in. I mean, he, it's amazing he didn't die on the way to Golgotha. And they had a lot of different uh, circumstances like that. So one of the rules was if you were a murderer, they would actually tie the dead body of the person you killed to your back. Now, do you think for a moment they cleaned the body before they put it on your back? Do you think they embalmed it? Do you think they even drained the blood from it? No. Every open sore, every cut, everything that you did to that body is now flowing over you. And that's your punishment. Until you die, you carry around the person you killed. You carry around that old man. Paul may have had this image in his mind when he said this. And we can't just do this for the first few weeks before Christmas. We can't just remove the old man holding us back. It has to be the whole of our life. And the best illustration for this is simply from the Colossian church itself. They were a church that were absolutely on fire for God's truth, on fire for it. They were a church that, were, that worshipped every week, and it was, it was powerful worship. Unfortunately, there were a few things that had crept into the Colossian church that they're questioning, and Paul says you have to remove them. But he says the worship you're doing Replace those vile habits with your worship. Uh, they were talking about things like talking to angels, uh, mystical experiences, like they were the point of the Christian life. Paul says those things don't glorify God in the least. Get rid of those things and replace them with the way you're worshiping. He did this by reminding them of what the Christian life is all about. Humility, because Christ humbled himself. Gentleness, because Christ is gentle with you and me. Forgiveness because Christ forgave you and me. So we're in chapter 3, and Paul encourages us by reminding them of Christ's lordship over all creation. And this section ends with our verse of the week. So whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Colossian church had a lot going for them, like I think we do here at Mount Pisgah. It was full of good people using their spiritual gifts to do great things for the kingdom. 
But every now and then, we all need reminded of that one basic truth. The things that signify the time of year that so many of us say we love so much that qualify as our favorite need to be practiced year-round because they need to identify the Christian. Not because we're commanded to do it, but because we must treat others as unfairly as Christ has treated you and me. Because God is the most unfair of all. When God saved us, it was because he desired a holy people, not because we deserved it. It's a harsh truth, but this example, I think, kind of uh, brings it home for us. If you lie to your kids, what's your punishment? They might be mad for ten minutes, but any trust you've lost with them, you can gain back. Kids, two, three years old, you can uh, trust them again. They can trust you again. If you lie to your spouse, what happens? You're on the couch for a night or two, and it takes a few weeks, maybe a little bit longer, to rebuild any trust of your lie. But if I lie to my boss, I get fired, and then other employers have a hard time trusting me. If I lie to the government about my taxes, I go to jail, and then no one trusts me. Right? You see how if God is the supreme authority over every area of my life, more than any kid, any spouse, any government, then it makes perfect sense that the same crime as it offends a higher and higher authority deserves the harshest punishment. And it's not an easy pill to swallow, but it's the biblical truth and it holds up. But because God did not treat me fairly, because he has treated any of us the same way, then we must treat our fellow man with love. And Paul promises us love can bind any two people together. Even if you wouldn't say you're a Christian, the very fact that God has offered you his good news is him not treating you fairly in hopes that you will respond to it. Because the fact is that our sin deserves eternal separation, which is the harshest punishment from him. Because of this, it's no surprise that that Paul sums up our reaction to God's unfairness by reminding us to simply be thankful for his unfairness. Gratitude is my natural response year-round to God's unfairness in the midst of my unfaithfulness. Gratitude, like so many kind of Christmas buzzwords, pop up in abstract form in different conversations all season long, but the redeemed believer should have that in their heart 24-7. This Christmas season, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Reflect on what you love so much about this holiday. When you go to your parties, love on your family and friends like never before. When you're asked to give at work to different charities, do so with a compassionate heart. When your kids push you beyond what you thought your limits were, continue to be patient with them and just see what happens. We should do all these things because to each and every one of us, Christ was compassionate, he was humble, and he was gentle. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for being unfair with us, for showing us just how humble, compassionate, and patient you are towards each and every one of us, because you desire that none should perish. Give us the same heart so that we can show the world just how patient you are. I ask that you bless us this week and the coming weeks as we celebrate your son's birth on the earth. Help us to trust him more. And if any heart here is hardened, please soften it so they might hear your gospel of the forgiveness of sins. Me, my pray. Amen.